0: You are listening to the Evolution Exchange Podcast, a platform that we've created to bring the Nordic community together. My name is Paul Hackett, and I'm your host. Hi, everyone. This is Chris Bennett here, the Nordic's Managing Director here at Evolution. Thank you so much for listening, and I really hope to hear from you soon. Please enjoy the rest of the podcast. So if you just want to start by introducing yourself, and then we can go from there. Yeah, so uh, my name's Liam Brennan. Uh, I I do a lot of things
1: um, at the minute, more things than, than I care to recall. Uh, But some of the major things is I operate as a director for Tencent, so I'm responsible for the second-party studios and the decisions, or guiding them and supporting them in their decisions that they make around games, technology, and services. And that's both from an internal perspective, from the technology that's developed inside of Tencent, and it's trying to bring awareness of what those products and services are to the studios so that they understand what they can take advantage of, as well as um external perspective as well so i always say i'm like i'm i'm everybody's dream when it comes to conferences and all of these things because i'm the guy who actually has to listen to everybody's technology products and services and understand really what the value propositions are the maturity levels and all of the other key considerations that we need to think about um i also i also um run a a services company which is kind of experts in back-end online services multiplayer game and, and games as a service and that's called companion um, and through that we service a large number of customers as well um and kind of help them to build successful games so i try and uh, i try and use both of those things as kind of key advantages to me to kind of be able to learn from one area in order to take that learning into other areas um'm I'm, I'm also act as a, an advisor for a group who are putting together a pitch at the moment for, for a game. And they're bringing in a highly talented team. Um, and I've been doing that for about six months as well. That's a bit more lightweight compared to the other things that I do. Um, and so historically, like I joined Microsoft about 10 years ago. Uh, I was originally working on content for Xbox 360. I was working on Xbox One prior to launch. We used to call it the Zebra Kit because it was painted like a zebra before it ever was released. Uh, so I was building products and services for that. I was doing World Cup interactive gamified applications on Xbox back in 2014. I was doing this sort of game DVR, the ability to record yourself, the YouTube for games on the Xbox uh, when it launched. Um and then as as things kind of changed and evolved at Microsoft and some of the studios were, were being kind of shut down at that time, uh, I pivoted to become program manager on Paint 3D, which was shipped on Windows 10 to over at the time uh, originally it was to over 20 million monthly users uh, that actually significantly increased after i went not saying that those two things were linked but that's what happened yeah, yeah. Um, and then then i was uh, a lead on the hololens and virtual reality group uh in the uk for microsoft for the last three years that i was there so i was there almost seven years in total um i then moved to a, a british games technology company called improbable um who hopefully some people have heard of. Uh, originally, I went in as a principal program manager to coordinate the teams who were, who were looking to release Spatial OS. So in terms of games technology, the USP of that was let's get more players in the same space at the same time and enable studios to do something with that. Uh, and then I became director of operations, which was, uh, which was taking more of an oversight across all of the, what was called improbable multiplayer services. So all of the different tools and products that improbable we're building. Um, and then I became VP of the hosting and games technology business, which then meant that I was accountable for that division. I had my own head of technology, professional services, uh, product, product marketing, business development, leads of each of those areas. And ultimately was, was accountable for the P and L, um, for that division. Um, until, until ultimately we scaled that down, um, and, I, I went off and did my other things as I do now. Like I so said, the, the Tencent gig um, kind of started at the end of last year. Really, really kind of hit its stride in 2023.
0: And how long ago did you start Companion the services? So, so that was so the the two things were
1: actually linked around. So at the time, um, as we were kind of going through some changes in improbable, improbable was shifting a little bit in terms of its uh, its games investment in the technology space. So it was uh, leveraging a lot of the technology that had been built to focus on the metaverse side of things. And when it talks about metaverse, it's really thinking about brands and sports arenas and, and that kind of side of things um, rather than maybe some of the traditional game side of, uh, of the metaverse, which is some of the areas that we were working on now, because of that, and because of the pivots and changes that we were making internally for me, it presented an opportunity um, and I really wanted to continue to focus on games. I left Microsoft to go to improbable
0: because my career was moving further away from games and I wanted to bring that back. staying heavily in tech, but just not working on a game product.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I kind of, yeah, I, I get... So for me, I guess, most of my career has been spent in contribution towards games rather than spending long, significant periods working on a single title. So i look more even so even the technology side of things so we built what's called a server orchestration technology product which basically means it enables multiplayer games to scale up and scale down the numbers of servers that they need as their players increase and decrease on a given day um now we had 20 different customers that were leveraging those products so so my focus was never on one specific one. It was very much how do we make something that scales and supports multiple customers in those spaces. Um, but any any for me, like games is definitely a passion of mine. I did my education in games. I did my degree. I did my master's degree in that space. Um, I've always been a huge fan. So for me, any contribution that I can make to just help something be successful in that space is kind of what I wanted to do. So so back to your question, then how did Companion start? That was that was a case of there's an opportunity there where my division at improbable we were reallocating into other areas, into the metaverse spaces. Um, myself and and a number of others kind of really wanted to remain in the game space. And therefore, there was opportunities in that we were having to turn down some of our games projects. And so I, I was told we have to turn them down. We have to move into the metaverse. That's our focus. And so I did. Um, and at the same time, I said but I've got another option for you. What about if we did this? And it it, it allowed me to get in touch with some of my former colleagues as well. So I was able to bring across a a project manager from Microsoft after my time there. Uh, Some people from Improbable, who wanted to remain focused on games. And that created a foundation uh, to be able to create a company. And we really... like. in, in that company, there's a heavy focus on high caliber, high quality, so we're bringing in people from uh, various places at the moment, which uh, I won't go in too, too deep, but um, in the field. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's that capability of um, of kind of enhancing teams that really want to do something in the whole MMO or multiplayer or games as a service space specializing, especially across PC and console. That was the kind of the primary areas and then we'll i'm sure we'll get into to game engines a little bit further on but yeah all of our projects that that team's working on at the minute is on real engine and specifically on unreal engine 5 100
0: yeah and then for me um i act as a well i run a gaming division um for the european network essentially where we supply freelance contractors to game studios all over Europe with a big focus on Stockholm as our Nordic team focuses there, and we've got a German team as well. Uh, we do dabble with UK, uh, studios as well, but that's mostly based on the fact that we've dealt with studios in the Nordics and they happen to have similar studios or offices located in different European countries. So we mix and mix around a bit. Um, and then obviously we run a gaming podcast channel, which is obviously because we want to be a part of the community, understand the challenges a bit more, and not always just be very sales orientated. We want to also have that element of understanding the community, building rela- relationships in the community as well. So that's why we, we do the podcast and have these types of conversations, as I'm sure you can understand. For, for
1: sure. And I'm sure even though like we haven't gone deep on this, there's probably a lot of crossover uh, in some of the studios. given. Um, Tencent has a large presence in that sort of area as well. And the invested studios and the second party stuff. So yeah, I'm sure plenty, plenty of conversations to be held on
0: hundred percent. Right. So let's, uh, kick off with some of the questions that we had planned for this. Um, so a very open question to get the ball rolling, um, very generic, but what factors do you need to consider when choosing technology for games? So considering that you've come up with a new idea for an IP, where do you start? You know, you could be a solo artist or you could be a bigger team, but where do you, as a support for game studios, tend to get people to think about where to start?
1: Yeah, so to be honest, I could probably spend the whole hour just answering this question. Yeah, we don't have that much time, but... (laughs) But, uh, so, so because I've taken on the responsibilities, uh, from what I would consider as, is, is both sides of this coin, right? I have had the responsibility of, I am building products and services for game studios, and I want them to adopt my products and services, as well as where I sit now, which is, which is on the side of the studios to say, which technologies am I really going to recommend that studios use and leverage? So... I think in that I, I, consider my, because I've had those opportunities, I have quite a rounded perspective of the things that, that people should consider. And I'm sure, um, that there'll be some people on the technology side who kind of, who might listen to this, who might be interested in some of these answers and potentially on the game studio side as well. Um, so where, where, like, where to start? So the first thing I would say is proven capability and proven technology is really, really important. The first question that I will often ask anybody, and bear in mind, I probably have between five and 10 technology teams or products or or companies pitch to me what their product does every week. So I see a lot, a lot, a lot of stuff. Um, But one of the first questions that I'll always ask is who's using it at the moment? Now, this is a double-edged sword because it's very, very difficult. How do you get started when the first question is who's using it when the answer is nobody um and so what you tend to see in a lot of companies as well is uh, especially when these companies are backed with investment through vc is a lot of companies start from this perspective of well let's try and get a, a backer in kind right so it can potentially be somebody who owns a studio is also an investor in a game's technology, and then the game studio agrees to use that technology, which then becomes the reference point for that game's technology to be able to say, Studio X uses our technology, so you can trust that. Yeah. And, uh, and, and you see this in different ways as well. So if we take something like the, the approach that Improbable was taken with Spatial OS, again, a huge technology investment that was being made And the way in which improbable approached this problem was they brought in two internal game studios. It was originally three, but we scaled it down to two. And one of those was a game which was released called Scavengers, which was built by a team called Midwinter. And another one was a game that was in development, which is uh, funnily enough owned by Tencent now. So I won't go into too much detail about that. But um, I'm accountable twice for it. Um, Yeah. So, but but what it did was it was building these games because. It was it was focused on that belief that if we demonstrate the value of the product um in the market with our own game titles, then more studios will trust that the technology works. They will see the value that it brings in the market, and therefore they will want to use it. And I think conceptually that is the right approach to take. And you see the same with CryEngine as another example, right? They have their own internal studios. Um, And they've got their own games, of which one's very, very successful, actually, and continually growing. A really, really good example, if if anybody's wondering about what it looks like from a a games-as-a-service game that has progressively grown over a five-year period in terms of its user base. Uh, But they're doing something very similar as well, and their mentality is very similar to Improbables there. So that's kind of, this is kind of a long-winded way of me saying it's really, really important to demonstrate the value of the technology through game studios in whichever way that you possibly can do that. Um, Then there are other key factors as well. Commercials is always going to be a thing, right? As much as it's not necessary to say that this one wins by being £5 cheaper than this one, which is obviously never going to be a determinant factor, people still do look at commercials. So when we're thinking about things at a ten cent level, I often will say to studios, "Well, look, this product and service we're going to develop this internally or is in developed internally, it might not actually even be at par with this external service, but this is free. So it's then a question of do you want to take the gamble on this product and in the team and enable that to continue to evolve and grow, um, or do you want the guaranteed proven third party?" product that you can access
0: but you're what going the to- trend that you've experienced there The most people go down the free route from your experience it, and then it, potentially have to end up porting over to the one that they had originally thought in the end anyway it,
1: it's the- it's, it's definitely so it's definitely a mix i think um the, uh, the key to this is communication right and and when i talk about communication in this example what i really mean is there are some technologies where people might not be as as forthright or as open in the communication to say this is where our technology and product is today it's not finished it's not there this one is actually better than it however we are very very committed to this product we are going to continue to evolve this product we want to take your feedback on board as we develop this product and we're going to give it to you for free and we understand the limitations but we want to work with you to get past those things So it's really, really critical that you drive that message home. And even if you're a third-party technology provider, right, you don't have to say it's free. right? You don't have to go all that way. But you could do something that is significantly reduced in order to get a studio to say, well, it's worth me taking the gamble here because it's such low cost. And again, when we're talking about the key of it is proven in the market, I would say that this is another technique and another opportunity and option for games technology companies to think how do we get that first customer if we can't afford if we don't have the levels of investment to build our own game studio to build our own game to demonstrate the value of it then how do we do that and that is another way you could say we're going to do it for free to this or for very very low cost to this game studio and we understand this is where we are we understand the other choices that you've got in the market. This is our pitch and, and we're going to be open with you. And the right studios will take those gambles. So when you're talking about who, who is then going to take it. Now the reality is, if you go to somebody massive, a, a Riot, a League of Legends or Activision Blizzard or somebody like that and say, please try our product, we'll do it for you for free. They're going to go, at the end of the day, most games technology, it's, it's pennies on the balance sheet. It's not worth our time. Whereas, if you actually find the right targets in what I would consider more of the double A space, um, those those games that aren't backed to that degree, who do have to to be very cautious about the investments that they make, and ultimately everybody wants to make something that's successful uh, and commercially viable over the long term, then they're much more likely to listen to what that pitch is, um, and, and a lot of the stuff as well I talk about in in terms of 10 cent. And and the approach that we take internally in Tencent, it's not about going out and just pitching products, right? If you go out and just pitch products, then, then, you know, most of the time, you're hands off. You're not going to kind of build that relationship. It's really, really key, I think, especially in the games industry, to be building those connections, building those relationships. Focus on warm introductions wherever you possibly can. Demonstrate knowledge and capability that you are willing to give away. And then you can earn the trust in order to pitch products and services. So all of these are, I think, are key, key factors under consideration, right? So we've got, is it proven? Um, and and then the commercial side of things, two absolutely key factors that I think about. Then I think about sizes of studios. I think about game types and genres. So if if somebody said to me, should I use a third-party server orchestration technology solution? My answer will be, it depends, right? It depends on what oh, size yeah. of game studio you make, yeah, what type of game. So like these, these products are very, very good and very, very mature when something is a, what's called a session based multiplayer game. So if it is a car racing game, you have the race and the race ends, the session ends, so that's a session or a battle Royale yeah. Yeah, or any, any of these kind of things, um, where you kind of, you get into the battle. The battle has a start, the battle has an end, the session starts, the session ends. They're not as good if you are talking about a persistent world MMO. Um, especially when you start talking about like people kind of breaking the boundaries of of what you fit within those spaces. Right. At that point they are Yeah, ex- exactly. there's there's loads of um, there's loads of kind of grums in this genre now, and there's there's more coming as well. Um so but in, at this instance then you start to talk about what a custom orchestration solution would be funnily enough um the the companion team are building one of these at the moment for uh, something that's an mmo in development but it does mean it's not an off-the-shelf product you know and and people might try and convince me otherwise who build these technologies things but in general it's not a shelf off-the-shelf product uh, that you look to leverage you need to to really understand the architecture that's necessary to build those Adaptable things. basketball per game as well. Is it yeah, game for sure. Now, now, the other important factors to think about, especially when you're talking about something like that, is that sort of service, that is not a thing that you are handing over. It's a service that you as a technology provider are providing, and therefore you have to think about what is our support and operations look like? What's our SLAs look like? It's critical for any game that they remain up active so you have to take that accountability to say if the servers go down i'm responsible for those servers going down i need to bring them back up because time is money to to game studios they do not want to lose games and players at certain peak times um so so all of these are additional factors then you have to think about if i'm building that technology that has that accountability for 24 by 7 service operations what impact does that have on the staff that i'm hiring I'm going to need certain people to be on call rotations and that sort of thing. Because as much as we can handle what you normally classify as first and second line support, when it comes to third line, I need to get an engineer out of bed in order to fix an issue because our scaling is broken and we can't, and I've seen, there was a, a, a brilliant game, I think it's called The Last Enoch recently, has moved. it was a single player game for years and it moved into multiplayer. And it had what I would consider unexpected success. And I always try and uh, tell studios to, because most games fail, right? The reality is 97% of games aren't successful, but you, the worst thing that you can ever do is, is have the opportunity to be successful, but not have planned for success. And I think, uh, I see some examples of that game where they had unexpected success in the multiplayer mode and there's videos on YouTube of 7,000 people waiting in the queue to try and start a match. Right. And that is you've you've not you've not expected the numbers of players and you've not scale tested to the degrees that you needed to in order to okay. make sure that you not could support. Job. Job. <laughs> no. Now people could call it champagne problems, yeah. right? But the reality is it's still problems because you want everybody to get in, everybody to have an amazing time. Because a lot of those people will go,
0: I'm not waiting for this, and then they'll close it and then they'll never come back again. But even players have had issues with stuff like that, like I remember when Valorant first came out, even getting people yeah. to even play the game in the first place took forever. And, and then, yeah, that was just a, a big, long waiting list to get into that game. It just.
1: Yeah, a hundred percent. And the, there is things that you can do to prepare uh, in these areas, but obviously, um, you know, live operations and everything, if it's going to go wrong, it's always got to choose the, the optimal times to go wrong. Um. When you come into this sort of planning, the other thing to be very conscious of is that games basically when they when they launch, you get that launch burst of players. So in general, what you tend to say is that after a month to two months, you start to understand what your steady state is going to look like in it from a CCU perspective. And if you can retain anywhere between six and twenty percent of your player base after that period of time, then that's what that, that's what you'd consider good slash acceptable right. because, yeah yeah because like when you launch the first few days or the first week you get huge spikes because you've put mass um, effort into your marketing you have put mass effort from a commercial perspective into your market and you get these bursts and then things settled out right you can't retain that sort of newness that you are creating and that excitement around a title so it it will burst it will drop and then it's about how do I retain that audience. Now that the very, very best games as a service games will then progressively grow that audience over time as well. It doesn't have to be steady state towards death. I mean, if you look at the the biggest one, I think it's Counter Strike, isn't it, on Steam at the minute in terms of numbers? It's it's five, six, seven years old, and it's continuing to break its own records
0: of uh, of CCU, and that is that, that's an incredible. Vitalized with. Global Offensive 2 as well on that one. But James made a good point about how streamers, content creators have an absolute boom to the market. So the advertising that streamers have when gamers uh, then want to pick up a game. I mean, I myself, when I look at playing a new game, I get a lot of my inspiration from watching people play the games themselves. And I'll give that a go. And you give it a whirl. So 100%. And so, so, uh,
1: but let's, let's touch on the technology aspect of that as well. So inside of Tencent, there are there are multiple teams that are building different products and services. And one of those products that's been leveraged quite heavily in the East, that's maybe not come right across to the West yet, or certainly I've not seen examples of this, is they have tooling, which is called like a creator hub. So what this enables them to do is publicize it on a website of a really popular game and say, we're going to have a competition across, across streamers right? And the winner is going to get $500 and second place is going to get 250 And the goal is, this is the area in which you need to create a video, right? So it could be best kills or whatever it is, right? Depending on the game. And whoever can get the most views of their um, video wins first prize and whoever comes second, and they, content creators can choose to sign up to these things, right? So there's, there's that technology aspect. It's not just technology inside of the game itself, but technology around the game that enables this tooling so that I can go in and say, I'm going to create a new event and a new task. And sometimes it can be first, second, third. Other times it can just be a challenge of get over 10,000 views and you get this reward. You can reward via in-game currency. You can reward via real monetary values. Um, and then that can encourage more and more players to to want to play your game because of the point that you made, right? people watch these streams, they get inspired to play these games. So, you know, game studios aren't crazy when
0: they're doing this stuff. They they invest in in order to to kind of acquire new players. Yeah, no, that's very cool. Yeah, I mean, we kind of like constantly. Dipping into the next question that I was going to ask anyway, which was like, is the latest technology always the best option? And we've dabbled in that conversation to some degree, but for example, yeah. the unreal five engine is probably the most relevant thing to on the market right now, which is the latest in that engine Yeah. On what circumstances. Would you say that is the best option? But then again, when it isn't,
1: yeah. So I mean, Unreal Five is um, it's a massive, massive update to Unreal Engine. For for me, when you're talking about game engines, that is that has pushed the the scale of of kind of Unreal from where it was at four to five, and it is a massive, massive jump, which is has for me has a huge impact. At. What I'm seeing now is game studios that traditionally were built in for VR or for mobile are starting to utilize Unreal Engine. Right. And in the past, that just was like, of course, you use Unity right, for those kind of platforms. So it's it's huge. Now, the, the reality is that there's a lot of studios that I'm aware of that are building games that are in development right now that are leveraging Unreal 5. Unreal 5.1 came up fairly recently as well. Um, but there's very few in production. So actually, one of the game titles uh, that I've been supporting and, and working on has recently upgraded from 4 to 5.1 and, uh, it's a live title. Um, I would, I, I don't want to speak for them, but I would imagine that if you, if they were here right now, they would say there have been a number of challenges with that. Um, it is the latest, the bleeding edge version. Um, and, and they sort of paying the pain for that, but they were willing to pay the pain for that because they also wanted to demonstrate that they are very forward thinking when it comes to technology. Um, Anyway, with regard to that story, so the the studio that have just moved to 5.1, they're definitely feeling the pain of that, but they they were willing to take that on. They're still actually in an early alpha stage, so they're not at their full global launch yet. Um, But yeah, it's definitely a consideration. So in general, I would say be at least one minor version, as in the, the point version behind what is the latest, because you want... To get all of the kind of bugs and mistakes out there, um, and get them resolved as quickly as possible. But to, the thing is, with with games technology, not everything is a version controlled set of technology. So Unreal is a very good example of something that is very much version controlled and then sent out and issued and used. Server orchestration technology is not version controlled. It is you are going to be. It's it's the responsibility of the people managing that technology to make sure that they are doing it in a way that is very, very conscious of the game titles um and kind of what's being developed there. Oh there we go. We've got a question. What are the most common mistakes game developers make when trying to make the right decisions for their games and how they can avoid them? So uh I think so that's a that's a really good question. So for me, one of the biggest challenges that you have when you're building games technology or services is that Game developers like making games, right? And and I mean that in the most genuine terms. They enjoy the building of the game. They enjoy the creation aspect. They enjoy the challenge of that. And what that can lead to, um, if, if every decision is driven purely from the tech angle, is... Nah, we won't use that. We'll just build our own. And the the reality is that a lot of the time, it doesn't make commercial sense to do that. A lot of the time, it is much more viable to lean into somebody who who has basically allocated the cost of building that capability across multiple customers, rather than just you as a single developer. However, these are other considerations as well. So again, when I talked before about if you're the biggest of the big AAA game studios and titles do you really want to put a reliance of your game and your revenue on a third party? What happens if that third party decides, actually, we've gone bust, we didn't get enough customers, we were badly managed, the team wasn't the quality that that we would need, the response rate wasn't fast enough, any of these other factors will play into people's minds. So If I was, if I was responsible for League of Legends and somebody said, oh, why don't you use our technology and your game is, is fundamental and foundational and has a reliance on that technology. And I would say, no, because the reality is that if I use that, and if my game falls over, then I'm in a lot of trouble because basically the, the, would lose. Was I mute all that time? It's just said the host unmuted my mic, um, I hope I wasn't. Uh, anyway, so the amount of money that that studio would lose would be such an incredibly high amount that it wouldn't be worth the gamble to take that. So I think um, so. The, those are other like key considerations around this. Um, and then in terms of mistakes that game developers make. So I guess the it's it's really really hard. The other the other aspect is really hard when you're talking about and I, when I'm thinking about mistakes here. By the way, in this context, I'm thinking about. Should I have bought something versus should I have built something myself? Um, And so it's definitely a mistake to, to choose the wrong option. But again, it's not a black and white, you should always do this or you should always do that. It's very much dependent on the game type, the game state, the size of the team that you're operating with, the timelines that you work into, all of those kind of things. Um, I would definitely say that, you know, I've been in the situation where we've had to shut down technology services and products, and I've had to have those phone calls with games customers to say, I'm sorry, but we're no longer going to be able to support your game. We're going to give you notice of which you have three months or so to migrate from something to another thing. Um, And, you know, that's, that's never ideal. So, What that you could absolutely consider that they made a mistake to onboard onto that technology. Um, and, and this is not a thing to say, because the other examples here is is when a company goes bust, that can happen, but it's not just about that. I mean, if you look at Amazon and Amazon purchased GameSparks and then GameSparks got killed and customers had to come off that, that's a Amazon is not bust, right? Amazon is still very, very successful, but they determined that their investment in that area was no longer worth making. So it's really, really difficult and people have to be, I think, very, very cautious about how long do I, is my game going to be out? How long is it going to be in development? Is this company going to be around for that period of time? Again, all of this comes back to that demonstration of success in the market. If, if, a, if a technology has a lot of um, games that rely on its capability, it is most likely going to be profitable. And if it is profitable, then it is most likely not going to be killed and it is going to be continue to be invested in and maintained. And so this is what makes things very, very difficult for people who start off in games technology companies and have a gr- brilliant idea and get a level of investment. It's really, really hard, though, to, to kind of grow into that. Um, and, and build that confidence with your market to the point that somebody like me would recommend that they actually do make that plunge and take that investment and leverage this technology or tool. Uh, because uh, the, so when I when I wear my 10 cent hat and I make these recommendations as well, I always say I I hate to be an idiot, right? And I will be an idiot if I tell you to do something and it turns out that that goes horribly wrong. So I, I take it very, very personally when I'm thinking about these considerations, uh, it's really, really important that any advice that I give is considered in all of these different ways, because I don't want to tell somebody, use this technology, company goes bust, they have to remove it. They're like, Liam, you told us to use this. So, um, so my personal approach is to be very considered and very thoughtful about what I do. And these are factors that I think about, um. So, uh, Jared you've asked 97% of games are unsuccessful. What determines successful? So, I'm talking about success in terms of uh, break-even viability. So, the, the game makes enough money that it pays for the cost of development and the ongoing cost of uh, support and service. So, that's what I would consider as successful. So, you can consider it as commercially successful from that perspective. Break-even or profitable. Uh, let me see. the The... Build your own mistake. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to find the the questions. Uh, that was more of a comment, Michelangelo. All right, what's the what's the next one? As a project grows, it's easy to get blind, and you end up in a situation where you must kill your darlings. How would you handle this situation? Uh, yeah. So in case you build on tech and you take on too much. So, so Michael, let, let me let me give you a concrete example of of where this becomes a challenge. So spatial OS if we go back to the improbable, the idea here was more players in the same space at the same time, which conceptually is, is really, really interesting. And you see multiple other companies are now building on the back of this. So you've got the Hadians, who's been around a while, and you've got Metagravity, and all of these are, are kind of going after that same USP of more players in the same space at the same time. So as you get to this point, and, and we all do it when we're building games, You basically realize that you've bitten off more than you can chew. You've got grand ambitions, but you need to scale that back into what is an MVP of my game. And then I can grow it from there. If it it launches well, and if it's a success, then we can expand on that. Now, technology like with a value proposition, like more players in the same space at the same time, is very, very easy to cut, right? So the reality is, how core is that to my game loop and my gameplay and if it is not absolutely core it is likely to be scaled back when you first do a launch and this is some of the challenges that we learned i would say at at our time at improbable as well is that a lot of games who signed up to use the technology then progressively as they got closer to launch realized we just need to focus on a smaller number of players or smaller game sessions to get started and then we can revisit our ambitions based on how well that initial success goes um so that that would definitely be an example of uh which i think is kind of kill your darlings i think that's what you meant by that um of kind of something that is definitely part of an ambition but gets scaled back um and yeah i mean there's various other things you could talk about uh like matchmaking technology right so when you're talking about like really when you again we'll go back to a session based game and we're talking about matchmaking. It's really, really important to get them balancing of your matchmaker right. So what what we don't want is me and Andy to be playing a game and Andy comes in and he's played a hundred games and he's really, really good. And it's the first time that I've ever played. And so I come in and then Andy batters me <laughs> straight away and I get killed. I don't want to play that game anymore. That was rubbish. I didn't have a good experience there so when you when you then look at what's called skill-based matchmaking you are then starting to set parameters around i won't get matched with andy because he's going to batter me i'm going to get matched with other people who are similar skill levels to me who are also noobs um just like me and so that we can all have a good time and enjoy it and it's competitive and it's not just one person destroying another person but on the other hand if the game only has a hundred people and Andy's played 100 games, and there's only three other people that have played 100 games, how long do you make him sit in a queue and wait in order to be able to get enough players before a match can be started? Because he doesn't want to sit there for 15 minutes and wait to have a match, because otherwise he's going to get bored. So these are adjustable parameters that fit within good matchmaking technology that you really need to think about, and you need to be continually adjusting and tweaking, and you need to be thinking about what are the what are the parameters that change those things? So I've talked about he's played a hundred matches. it could be how many wins he's got, it could be how many kills he's got. all of these could be different factors into his score versus my score that has to be factored into that technology in order to make sure that we optimize in that space because it's it's quite a well-known area in that it's really really important for for player retention
2: once you've got players into your game to try and maximize their experience there. No, it's a really really good explanation. And thank you for keeping the questions coming in, by the way. Like we can keep answering a lot of really good questions. Um we we'll, should we move on to one of the ones you and Paul had a yeah, yeah, good. And it. then we'll we'll go on to some more at the end probably with a bit of a QA. So the uh the question I think you were up to was um Lim, in your opinion, what is the next great tech innovation in the in gaming that will have a tangible impact on the creation of games? Oof. So,
1: so this is this is difficult because if I so first of all, I'm going to give the boring answer, <laughs> and the boring answer is AI.
2: Yeah, I thought that was going.
1: <laughs> yeah, in, it, I mean, but I think it's it's where can we possibly take this, right? So the the evolution of of enemy characters and how that can be how how kind of AI can influence that, um, so that we don't see repeatable behaviors, we see um, we see enemies acting in different ways. Also, though the whole so for me, one of the bigger things has always been large MMOs and game worlds and, uh, and, kinda, and the non-playable characters in that space. And we've all seen, when you get into these games, I have a conversation. You say words to me. You say words to me. You stop. I have a conversation. You say the same words, right? And it goes back through. And you know this. Well, how can that be influenced when things can be continually evolving? Right. So that so that the characters, the non-playable characters can can bring about a life of their own and can change the, their speech and, and act in in different ways. I think there's there's loads of there's loads of opportunity in and around that space. And now there's a million others as well. like I, I mean there's people who are much smarter and deeper in this area than I am as well. But in general, I say it is a as is a big greenfield opportunity for games to do something innovative and different that is compelling. Um, and again, so if I if I compare that to something, so let's compare that to the thing that I've talked about quite a lot, because obviously a lot of my background um, support and the spatial OS side of things, more players in the same space in the same time. Do I ever think that that's going to be a thing? Uh, not really. Like genuinely, for me, I I am yet to see why that is more fun. I think conceptually people get this idea of that would be really cool. And then... It's, this is really cool. And then half an hour later, it is, okay, now give me something to do, right? Mm -hmm. Because just having lots of people around in itself is not the element that creates fun. Uh, And I think experiences can be just as fun, especially if you're talking about world exploration in a group of four or five of you that become much more close-knit than a group of 50,000 of you that are going all over the place. Now... There's definitely, like, you know, I could, again, conceptually, the idea of Call of Duty, where we're coming in from the beaches, and it's 500 against 500, and it's just carnage, right? It's like guns going off all over the place. Could be amazing. But, but I also think the reality of that would be, game starts dead. Game starts dead. Because there's so much that would be going on constantly. Um, but I think it would be incredibly difficult, uh, but also the things that, because companies keep spinning up this, uh, the various companies keep spinning up to offer that same USP. I think I would love to see more of them go. We believe in this so much that we are going to demonstrate why this is more fun. And so, like I said, improbable kind of started that journey and I'd never felt that maybe, maybe the game types were not quite the right game types in order to really demonstrate why this is key and why this is fun. And obviously they continue to focus on that as a USP in the metaverse side of things. Maybe they will demonstrate this and crack this very soon. And I hope they really do as well. Um, but I would love to see some of the others really lean into why, why that is the next big thing in technology, not AI. Why it's about getting more people all in this same space and really demonstrating it rather than saying, we build technology that enables you to do it. You make it fun to take
2: the risk off us, right? And, and so that I, yeah. I'm i always going to be hesitant on. And, and talk us through that process then. like How do companies prepare for that innovation? You know, that, that something new is coming. What what can companies do? And maybe from your previous experience yourself being through like when innovations come about, how do you prepare for it?
1: Yeah, so it,
2: it's, a, it's a difficult one because companies are always at a
1: different period in the development cycle as well. So, we have multiple studios right now. They're at various stages of development. Some are planning on launching this year, some are planning on launching next year. Some are at that concept phase. So depending on you where on where you are, it depends on how exploratory you can actually afford to be. Uh, you know if if we had a studio that was uh, about to launch in three months and said, so we're thinking about exploring AI and how that can affect our game. I'm like, it's too late, right? You get your bugs fixed and get your game shown, And then let's talk about that afterwards. Um, if it's next year, then I think, you know, it's something that we could certainly look at. But I would then be saying, like, let's try and investigate that outside of the core team, right? Because now we have a path in which we're trying to launch. We need to make sure that the core gameplay is there. We should explore some of this stuff, but let's try and not put that as an additional tax on the team. And then, and then if you scale all the way back to where a concept phase, then I think that is the absolute time to be exploratory in these certain areas. Again, bearing in mind what I said earlier, which is a lot of times the the bells and whistles will get cut right before a game launches because you need to get that core gameplay loop together. But um, I, I I still get motivated highly, like like I said at the very beginning, and I speak too. Five to ten different technology teams a week who tell me about the products and services, and I see some interesting things that kind of make me go, "That's really cool." I really think people should use that in their game. It's it's interesting and it's innovative, um, but yeah. So, but it, it is hard. It's hard to to kind of factor those things in, and and it's a slow process as well. Games games in general, you know, we're twenty 30 years into Unreal Engine. And you still get some games who are like, it's a little bit restrictive. I think we should build our own game engine. Just and I'm like, oh my God, don't like me do that. It's very, very mature by now. And that cost is gonna be huge on you. But you still you still convince an at an engine perspective sometimes, never mind at
2: this latest bleeding edge technology that's just came out. We are like sticking on the subject of innovation then. So You mentioned it obviously depends on um, companies' development cycles and where they're at within their game. Is there also a factor to be like external factors, you know, like with the war in Ukraine or with COVID or anything like that, with the market and the industry as to like, do we need to innovate to get something new? Do we need to hold back a little bit and be a bit more reserved? Like how much of an element is that is that to it? Um, I mean, those
1: kind of factors definitely play parts, but in in various ways. So if we talk about, for example, the the war from Russia and yeah. Ukraine, and how how did that affect me while well, I was at improbable from a technology perspective? Well, uh, we made a determinant political decision at the time to say we are no longer going to host game servers in Russia. Now you know we we can debate. Whether that re- like whether they actually cared about that and uh, but it was it was about taking a political stance to say we aren't supportive of that and therefore we aren't going to be supportive of that particular area. So that's one example in you know in generally in minor terms of something that we did that was caused by such an influence. Um, when you're talking about COVID, I mean a lot of people saw that as as an opportunity, and I still think it's an opportunity for me. It changed the way in which I in which I engage, in which I operate. So, um, so for, for example, my, the, the thing I always say is before COVID, I used to hate working from home. Mm. And the reason I used to hate working from home was because I felt like I would missed the conversation that happened at the, at the kettle or whatever else it was, right? It was the little conversations. And because I was, I'm from a production background, I, I was driven about knowing what was happening at all times, making sure that I could coordinate and direct in the right way. Um, and now when now, obviously three years, three and a half years later, when I talk about working from home, I say, I couldn't go in the office every day. I'm too busy. And it's basically my, my focus. I lost that fear during COVID because everyone was working from home mm. and because everybody was working from home, I knew that they weren't running into each other at the cattle. I knew that it was coordinated communications that were occurring and that I wasn't missing a lot of that sort of stuff. So, um, yeah so that that's that to me is obviously that's led to multiple things you know tooling like we're using right now to do these podcasts. the fact that we're doing this remotely um the whole i mean I imagine that there's a massive fluctuation in terms of in terms of games, it had a massive impact anyway. the numbers of players playing games during that period spiked insane mm. um, amounts because people needed something else to do. Um, but then there's communication technologies that have obviously massively changed throughout that. Uh, you know, I see uh, for example, when we're talking about communication, there's a lot of communication that does happen in games, both in voice chat and text chat. Then there's a lot of um toxicity management and capability that's now coming to the fore. So there's there's ones that I talked to very recently who are who are very much managing leverage trying to leverage AI in order to automatically detect if I'm calling you every name under the sun because we're playing this game and they don't want that to happen how can we automatically detect that translate it into text and give me a voice chat band for 24 hours mm-hmm. have the automations recorded so all of these are like a different tools and technologies that are coming in They're again related to the communication aspect which i think is related to
2: to some of those additional factors as well yeah well, um, I think that they were all the questions that you know you and Paul wanted to discuss. And then we were going to do a bit of audience Q&A, obviously, because Paul dropped out. You've answered a couple of them already. But if anyone uh, who's listening wants to add some more questions in, I know there's this one from George here. Um, which we can go back to that we, we didn't get a chance to answer so yeah should we do a little bit of Q&A if that's all right with you Liam for yeah you know, let's do it uh, so this one from Jordan, uh, what do you think about UX research in games it seems that a lot of game companies try to avoid this process even though it's not that expensive um, so it depends what you mean by UX I guess uh, when we're talking about UX research in games
1: yeah. So, George, do you want to expand a bit on, on exactly what you mean by UX research in this? Because, I, I mean, my my media mind gets drawn to menu systems and that sort of thing. And I don't know if that's what you mean versus um, versus something
2: that's more gameplay related. Yeah, I'll we'll give George a minute and uh, you can answer something else in here. Yeah, just I don't think there's any other questions that I can see that you've not already answered at the moment.
1: I'll, I'll answer this top one because it's a nice quick one. How do games make? <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, well, I can let you Well, um, I mean, I'd, I'd, I almost feel like this is a trick question, right? Pe- people like me buy them. <laughs> uh, in general, uh, we either buy them as a as a premium model, um, I in so premium games commercial model means there is an upfront cost. And I pay that upfront cost, and then I get the game. There is there is in-game purchases, or a marketplace capability, which can be that I can buy add-ons. So FIFA is quite famous for this now, in that it's pivoted its commercial model around having both a premium model and in-game purchases. And then the most common one, somewhat on PC, but most commonly on mobile, is, is the free-to-play in-game purchases, as well as advertising. So... Um, there's, there's special, there's techniques basically that companies leverage in order to maximize these, each of these things advertising. You see quite a lot in some of the lower cost, uh, from development perspective games that are made on mobile. Then you see in-game purchases from larger ones, um, even things like fall guys and, uh, and the mobile version, which is called stumble guys, that kind of is highly successful in the in-game purchase side of things. And then, yeah, like I said, then you've got the premium model. Uh, now, obviously, when you're talking about if you, if we expand on how do you make money, um, you have to you have to make more than you spend ultimately to be profitable. So investment, uh, what you're offsetting that against is then the cost of your development team as well as your marketing. And so I I also do a lot of work at the minute about how do we optimize our marketing, how do we understand the channels that we're leveraging from our marketing perspective. How do we measure the success of those from a revenue perspective? So all the common channels that you've got, you've got your TikToks, your Facebooks, all of these kind of things are mechanisms for which you can advertise your game. You pay to do so. And then you want to understand, was that a good investment that I made? Was that a bad investment that I made? Um, and there's, there's measurement tools. Again, I'm trying not to get into this uh, and tell you all the specific names of different tools that do all these things. But there are tools available to you that are literally designed to do things like tell you how the revenue per user from various different channels, where your players are coming from. They do what's called like accurate attribution or fingerprinting, which basically means that they know that person who was on Facebook has clicked on that link and has accessed Steam and and has downloaded your game. Or when, it, when it's fingerprinting, what it means is we can't tell that it was exactly that person but we can tell that it was the same ip address in general i mean that's the oversimplified way of of explaining it but we can we have a very very strong idea that it was the same person and then there's other instances where it was definitely the same person because we're able to follow the breadcrumbs all the way through that's how you get association and you understand the spend that you're making whether it makes sense or whether it doesn't make sense and so when you talk about how do i make money right that's what you've got to do right you've got to make sure that you drive higher revenue than
2: you are spending and your spend is across all of those different areas hopefully uh that's cleared that up and george has replied with a little bit more context um but we might need a little bit more than that still george to be honest with you uh we could go with this next question um how is future ai art workflows in game production Please share your thoughts on AI art. Oof. So this is uh, this is definitely a
1: spiky subject in that um, a lot of people, so artists in particular, are not all on board with the fact that their art is being taken and is now being leveraged and used to produce um, produce this sort of thing, and they get no recognition and no payment. However, again, I'm not going to talk about any specific names because I don't think it's appropriate to do so, but. I am seeing that there is usage of this in production now. Um, I think non-artists are definitely fans of the fact that they can very quickly generate concepts. Now, the, the reality is, or the, certainly the reality of what's happening today is that it would be people like myself. It's not actually me, but it would be people like myself. It would then say, I want to see this character in this setup, in that area. And I'd say, yeah, that, that's quite good. That's roughly it. Now I'm going to give that to my artists who I then say, so this is roughly what I was thinking about, but can you redo this in our style, you know, more specifically, I like a bit more of this, a bit more of that. I, I have had a good play around with AI art tools as well. Um, the, the things that you might see on LinkedIn or, uh, or any other social media tool that's like, oh, look at this cool image. It is hard to still generate those. Right. It is not as easy as just going, uh, give me this image in this style. And it is done like most of the stuff that comes back from those first kind of iterations, especially when it's like text input to to image output is rubbish. Right. And, and we're still on a massive journey before we get to the point where I can say I want to see a shooting game in the style of fall guys and blah, blah, blah. Like you can't just do that. And it generate these assets. So you still have to get close or as close as you can get and then take those assets and then give them to a, an artist. And I believe that's where we still are today. Mm. Uh, now, I would love to see that to continue to evolve, taking aside the morality side of things, right? Because, I, I'm again, I'm not the expert in all of that and I don't understand all of the, the copyright and appreciation for artists in those spaces. I'm very conscious of it. Um, but I don't understand all of it. But I do think whether we want it or not, that is going to happen because it's going to make workflows faster and easier and more conceptual. And I'm a visual person anyway. I love to see, like we can talk till the cows come home, but when somebody shows me a picture, I'm
2: like, ah right, I get it now. I can see what you what you're trying to say. Hopefully that's um answered that one as well. And I think George has a little bit more to it i don't know if you've got anything to add there liam um I, I forgot his
1: first part of his question now let me see what he said ui ux research in games um gameplay for example early not internal player test things so not just about the ui or test so basically my question is when is a good time to start showing the game to real users right so i mean if we're if we're talking about the journey, uh, the development journey of a game, and and what my views are on that. So, first of all, I would say, um, is there such a thing as as an alpha release or an open beta release anymore? And I, and I say that from the perspective of, do players actually accept the oh well it's kind of not really ready it's not really polished but I'm okay with that I wanted to get access to it early anyway, and I will continue to keep coming back to it. I actually think that's a really interesting concept. Obviously this is a games as a service concept, but um, but I'm not 100% sure. I think I definitely think you can your game can be dead if you launch in an open beta thinking it's an early access release and I don't have to worry about it and everybody'll be understanding. You could basically tank your game very very quickly and then struggle to ever come back from that. You also think have to think about the impact of the reviews and the external videos and communication and everything else that's going to demonstrate things going wrong. Um, so I think that that's the first aspect that I would say about this. Now, now to step back from that as to when is the right time to start to engage real users. I would so in general when you do in game development you will do things like friends and family play test, closed alpha, closed beta, and those kind of things where you have restrictive audiences who have ndas and things in place that means that they can't share footage they can't share any of those kind of things um i i think that that is i think that's still a good mode to do um i there, there are also other things that that we tend to do as well so i mean the schemes that i know that are in development right now and they're getting towards that sort of first launch point where they are where they're basically leveraging companies who can expand the game to a closed audience and then do full-on user research. So maybe this is what you're touching on. So some of the examples is there are companies that are available to you that can say, we can get 2,500 players to play your game. You need to book us six months in advance. And then at that point in time, we're going to get 2,500 players to play your game. We're going to produce a whole bunch of metrics around their play time, their behaviors, were they able to understand what they were supposed to do? And, and then you drive outcomes from that. As well as that, the other thing that you try and do is make sure that there's interviews with each of these people. Because they are paid in by some means in order to play your game, that, that can artificially, um inflate certain things like how long that person played for and how much time they gave it and all that sort of thing, which might not be representative of what happens when you launch. So it's also really, really important to get that direct feedback. So we do some of these sessions quite regularly in some of the bigger game studios, where we will engage in these sort of practices, learn from what the players say and the behaviors that we see. Uh, the, The specifics things that you really are able to catch is the sort of thing where a player doesn't know what they're supposed to do next, right? So that that kind of thing is, is very, very important, especially... So back in Microsoft days, we used to call it Ubi, which is out-of-the-box experience. You can think of it as the first-time player experience now. How much do I handhold that player through, and how ready am I when I launch in order to take a brand-new player and walk them through the behaviors and the, the tasks that they are needed to do before I let go of their hand and let them do it themselves. Um, and those kind of things are really, really important. in These kind of user user research sessions that you would run because there, there are areas that you really want to identify. Were they able to just go off on their own and do the right things or were they still running into the wall every five minutes because they didn't understand they had to use the doll, right? And, and it's, it's understanding where that is and where that line is and if we're in the right space there yet to kind of get that balance and active some of those things. So the, 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 those are different times to use users, right? So it's, you can do the friends and family, but they will probably be very, very friendly, right? The reality is most friends and family play tests are like, oh, you know, Andy, your game is brilliant, right? They're not going to say, man, that's an ugly baby, right? And so, but but this is where you need to start getting into the external audiences and, the other thing is you can't be precious about this stuff, right? The reality is you have to you have to listen to people. At the same time, lots of people talk rubbish, right? So you, you have to factor that into everything as well. But you have to be at least open-minded to seeing what data is telling you and how many, you know, if it's two and a half thousand and one person says it, it's okay to ignore it. If it's ten percent of your audience, you shouldn't really be ignoring that. Or you should be thinking, okay, this is a repeatable pattern. I don't want to impact negatively that amount. How do I rebalance? How do I adjust? How do I improve? Um, and that that's towards the end of the game cycle, and and you kind of go through the other stages before that as well. Like I said, you can have a you can have a PR event as well. This is other things that I've seen happen uh, where you invite press to play the game. You can't share stuff, but they can then talk about it. And you can even do things where you get to veto anything that they say in their articles that they kind of
2: create. If if you're creating the right noise and making the right investments in those sort of areas. That's a a great amount of detail there, Liam. So thank you. Hopefully that's uh, answered George's question. And I I think that's all of the questions as well, to be fair. Uh, I know you answered uh, a couple earlier on when Paul got out. So thank you for um you know half of the discussion with paul and then the other half myself <laughs> yeah you're all good <laughs> apologies again for that but no really uh really enjoyed listening into it before and listening to you now as well and uh thank you to everyone for answering the questions and tuning in but uh, i think we'll leave it there for, for today and then we'll see you next time on the next one which hopefully works <laughs> yeah perfect
1: well thanks for inviting me and i appreciate everybody kind of taking the time to listen to me rattle on and If anybody ever wants to get in touch, just reach out. I'm super open and I I love to be helpful.
2: So, um, you know, wherever I can be, I will. be. Amazing. Thank you very much, Liam. I'll have a great rest of the day and we'll speak to you soon.